Hello everybody and welcome back to the second episode of the second season of the Club of Pep, Pep Talk podcast. Today we're joined by myself, Adam Moses, Bellema Briggs and Jordan Jacobs, who's the uh, counsellor for Rayleigh in West in Essex. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Okay, yeah, so Jordan, a question that we like to ask everyone who comes on to this show is, choose anyone dead or alive who you'd want to have dinner with and, oh. and explain why <laughs> okay well um, it's a nice icebreaker. I, I, think, I think for me it would have to be someone completely away from politics the okay. political landscape and uh, I'd have to say Bruce Springsteen okay. uh, prominent musician um, I was raised with his music and his music inspired me to get into politics in many ways yeah, it's wow. a lot of his songs have um a political meaning to it mm. and ever since i was young you know I, I wanted to really understand why he was singing these songs there's a song called american skin 41 shots which is all about um police institutional police racism in america oh. and listening to songs like that at a young age i wanted to de delve deeper into uh, uh, as to why these these songs were being written and what is going wrong with mm. the world and society. So I'd have to say Bruce Springsteen as my dream dinner guest. Wow, it's actually it's actually cool that you mentioned that because you kind of sometimes underestimate the actual importance of music in society mm. because it's like a reflection of what you're seeing and that's essentially what politics mm. is. It's a reflection of like, okay, so people are angry about something then vote and go change it or or try and like um take part in acti activism and that's like what mu what music is and that's why i think it's really interesting it's probably you know the most popular yeah. medium for yeah like any sort of messaging but you know change, whether that's yeah. it's very you know, good or bad yeah um but you know it's an interesting answer so moving on from that so tell us about your time here at the university of york you know, what, what, what course did you do? What societies were you involved in? Uh, and how has that prepared you, I suppose, for your later life? Yeah, so I joined uh, the University of York in 2018 and uh, left in 2021, halfway through the COVID-19 pandemic started. Oh. And it got to that point where I was studying from home for the second half. And that was difficult, but obviously you've got a job to do and you've got to get it done. So, you know, it... it it took a lot of, um, it was only a learning curve. It took a lot of um, attempts to really dive deep and recalibrate myself to being back in Essex, um, studying, doing my dissertation. Um, but yeah, more, more specifically, I guess, um, I studied politics with international relations. Um, and in regards to the society I, societies I joined, I didn't actually take part in any kind of political societies per se. I went on a few post-soc um, events, which were mm -hmm. interesting. Um, I kept out of the um, university's conservative mm -hmm. association. Um, that was a personal choice for me. Um, and I partook in various sports at the university, um, cricket, football, lacrosse, mm -hmm. uh, representing the university, um, which was an honor play in universities all around sort of York, whether that be Leeds, uh, Bradford, um, 
whole Northumbria. It was a real great time mm-hmm. and it allowed me to, as someone who is from the southeast of England, it allowed me to experience myself away from York, mm-hmm. which became so comfortable and so familiar to me, and actually go to these other places. And that was something I will always remember and always appreciate, those mm. opportunities given to me by the university. Right, okay. I've, um, you talked about... Um you did a dissertation. I think with PP, I think sometimes you've got the choice to either do a dissertation or... Yeah, you can do a dissertation or take more exams, basically. Yeah. That's... So what topic did you write your dissertation on? I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. So my dissertation was on um, neocolonialism. Okay. So this kind of <coughs> form of, uh, I guess you could say, third world fascism, yeah. uh, looking at theorists like Emmanuel Wallerstein and sort of the more neo-Marxian theorists and applying those uh, theories to Zambia um, and looking at the the title of the dissertation was The Liberal Straightjacket, a a critical evaluation of Zambia's uh, economic situation. Mm. So we looked, I had a look at um, structural adjustment programs and how that affected uh, Zambia's uh, economic prosperity. Obviously, we know the long history of Zambia in regards to exploitation, especially Mm. around copper with companies like Glencore exploiting Mm -hmm. the resources and paying uh, Zambia a pittance to what it was actually worth. I also had a look at um, the self-interest of domestic elites um, in Zambia. So um, Frederick Chaluba, for instance, Mm. looking at how his uh, tenure in office affected the economic decisions being made. And then further, I also had a look at this concept this idea of residual colonialism wherein britain leaves yet the legacy still remains and the societal institutions still remain Mm. and it's ultimately up to zambia and the uh, zambian people to decide whether to continue those uh, colonial institutions or forge a new destiny create these new institutions and leave them condemned on the wayside of history Mm. actually I'm doing um, a module, I'm doing Rising Powers, and we look a lot at dependency theorists, where it's basic dependency theorists is basically where um, people say that countries that are kind of associated as third world, um, mm. they're unable to keep up with like the, the the first world in terms of trade, and they're basically saying, well, we've we've been ex- we've been exploited for for so-and-so, like, how many years, mm. we kind of need something back. Like, we've given you all of this. And your talk about colonialism is very interesting because we looked at, like, a couple of case studies. Like, for example, if you um, go to African countries, you see that a lot of the wealth is being, um, like, extracted out because because of, like, colonialism. All the stuff was built on the ports. Mm. So the way that the countries have been built through empire has meant Mm. that it's very hard for wealth to stay within the country and that's why sometimes it's really hard for third world countries to be able to develop and Mm. also it's it's very interesting because you like for example might look at india and india's kind of been like one that's um kind of broke that status quo despite all of their all of their like trade routes were built specifically so that everything can be exported yeah and then of course you know we have all these trade institutions mm. that are pretty much all their rules are set by first world countries so it's kind of hard for these third world countries to develop 
But so it's quite interesting that he talks about that because that's something I've, I found quite interesting in my module. Yeah, I think, you know, looking at dependency theory as a whole, um, especially world systems theory, mm. wherein you have these core states in the periphery, yeah. uh, core states being kind of uh, the Western world, America, the United Kingdom, and a lot of Western Europe. And they are in a intertwined relationship with periphery states, whether that be sort of third world nations in Africa or mm. in Asia. And the two depend on each other. The two depend on each other. The core depends on the periphery for resources. The periphery uh, depends on the core for finance and funding. And very rarely do you see a country break the mold with that mm. dependency theory. But mm. as, you, as you mentioned, you know, the likes of India, obviously they have depended on uh, Western funding. But if you also look at China as well, you know, the economic reforms under, I believe, uh, Zhao Jinping, I believe, mm. and the economic reforms that uh, he was able to push through in China and allow a more sort of Western pivot to China's economy, which previous to was very insulated from the Western world and uh, global liberal uh, economic forums. So I think... It, it, it's a really complex issue, yeah, this idea is. of core, periphery, dependency theory, world systems theory. But it's such an interesting topic. If you take mm. the time to read the material, read the research and understand what theorists like uh, Wallace Stein are talking about mm. and writing about, then it really offers you a unique worldview. And this is coming from someone who is a Conservative Party councillor, who the vast majority of whom wouldn't... Uh, necessarily, I guess, subscribe to such ideas. They just see it as healthy competition. But mm. to me, that does show there is serious uh, historical occurrences embedded within the foundations of this global governance that we mm. see today in this multilateral world, wherein avenues of exploitation are still able to continue yeah. and mm. be protected by these mm. Uh, these global institutions you just have to look at the IMF the World Bank yeah. to an extent the UN as well you know they're not there purely for a, le or a level playing field for all countries mm. there is a hierarchy to that and if you really want to solve a lot of the issues in this world right now I think you do need to have a look at how global governance and international institutions are organised yeah mm. how do you see then the uh, I suppose the threat of China in especially in uh, these a lot, a lot of African nations where uh, China is sending a lot of a lot of a lot of money yeah, and a lot of workers to build things you know to build like you know, new ports mm. and uh, uh, even things like building statues and uh, yeah. uh, of, of, of you know leaders from these African nations but then sending the Chinese workers to do it and mm. then sending a lot of money and wanting a lot of material return yeah. for those sorts of investments i think if you have a look at the sort of asian infrastructure bank and the finances it's given to developing countries it's a very very smart way mm. of um china to give a different alternative but not different insofar as um its actual end goal but to its means where you've got the IMF and the World Bank, the Asian Infrastructure Bank offers something slightly different. 
at the end of the day, it is, you could still argue, neo-colonialism, mm. because what are the real intentions of China in doing this? Could it be some kind of veiled um, soft power? Mm. Um, so that governmental relationships between, well, bilateral relationships between China and said developing country um, continue to persist. And we are witnessing almost an economic, I'm not going to say Cold War, but we are seeing mm. an economic battle between this kind of neoliberalism of the West and this kind of Chinese version of finance and development. And it's a really interesting topic. Mm. I don't, I wouldn't say there's a threat from China per se. Mm. I think, you know, the West and the East have always been in conflict. Yes. Ideologically, especially over the past 60, 70 years. Well, you could even argue the past 100 years. But I think it's only right that, you know, the US and the West have done this for so long. If China wants to start doing it, then obviously it's their right to do so. Mm. And if it has the consent and it's a bilateral agreement or a multilateral agreement between China and these developing countries, yeah. then they're a sovereign nation. They can choose what they want. It shouldn't be the place for a global institution to tell them what they can, can and can't do. Mm. Yeah, it's quite interesting because, you know, post-Cold War or prior to Cold War, the international like state of affairs was kind of geopolitics. Mm. And now it's kind of moved towards geoeconomics. So now, for example the examples you've given with China, now it's more a sense of, okay, it's competing, like we're competing with you on an economic front. And that's that's really interesting now because now countries, you know, with the growth of the BRICS, the BRICS nations now, and even Russia and China, they're increasing gold reserves to, to you know, compete with the dollar. They're hoping to make their own new currency. So mm. we're going into this like new state of international affairs that I think is very interesting. Mm. And I feel like in the in the next couple in the next couple of decades we could be seeing a very different world. I think you talked about soft power. Right now the West are obviously still they're still in control of many of the like, international institutions. But how long for? You know, you've got these countries even what was it Saudi Arabia that tried to join the BRICS? I don't know whether I've got gotten that right, but the BRICS are growing a lot a lot quicker than a lot of the West are, are anticipating and as he talks about that neo-colonialism as well it's kind of good now that countries have okay they've got more than one choice not everything's channeling through the West mm. I think uh, to pull it back from obviously we've got uh, yeah. you know, it, it's yeah. so interesting you know geopolitics and mm. uh, those um, international relations but bringing it back to like your time um, at university how did your time at university, I suppose, prepare you for your career now? How you, how did you get involved with, you know, with the Conservative Party, um, either before university, at university, and then um, for any future career? So I was, um, I was fourteen when I first got into politics. I was sitting in a cafe with my with my dad and. Up at the uh, the counter, um, I saw my local member of parliament. Now, th at this time, politics was something completely new to me. Mm. It was something that I saw my dad moan about all the time, but <laughs> I never really understood what this was. <laughs> and I was always curious, even as a kid, whether it be in history or in music, I was always curious. And mm. this concept of politics and how we are governed as a society and how diplomacy works and all these different intricacies which before into this wider category of of politics it was always interesting to me so 
I guess I mentally prepared myself and walked over to this uh, to my local member of parliament, a chap called Marc Francois MP, um, and introduced myself. And we got talking for a while, and a couple of months later, he offered me work experience. Mm. And you know, to be fourteen, fifteen, working in the House of Parliament is wow. such an honour. Mm. You know, I, I know for a fact that it doesn't happen with anyone really. You know, it, yeah. it's a very, very rare honour. And that allowed me a really interesting insight. It allowed me to contextualize my learnings because at that time I started to read. I started to read Adam Smith, uh, Keynes. Mm. I started to read Marx. I wanted, I just absorbed information like mm. a sponge. I just wanted to store everything in my mind. And that was such a great opportunity for me to really appreciate what the world of politics really is. And, you know, it's it's all fine and dandy, you know, reading textbooks and going to lectures and seminars. But you, the real world experience I gain from work experience um, and internships is invaluable. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm sitting in front of you both today. You know, I only graduated from the University of York uh, in September 2021. And, you know, I'm now a local councillor in Essex. I work uh, for a company called Energy UK and I do a lot of uh, parliamentary engagement, mm. uh, whether that be meetings with um, government ministers or MPs or peers uh, or tr key trade industry bodies. Mm. Um, it, really it really allowed me to mature um, career-wise and really develop my skills in such a manner which allowed me to rise quicker or at least get my first foot on the ladder a lot quicker than my peers both at you know sixth form and university and I've, I've had the opportunity several times to work in parliament sort of during uh, secondary school sixth form even a university so I've worked for the likes of Marc Francois as I've said um, Julian Sturdy the MP for York Outer and most recently, I guess, uh, whilst I was still at university during the summer, I worked for uh, Robin Miller MP. He's the MP for Abercrombie. And a lot of my work there was focused on research. And that was very, very interesting about the mm. constitution of the United Kingdom. Because at this time, uh, Robin was setting up something called the Conservative Union Research Group, which was uh, which which is a backbench group um, of conservative MPs who want to remind the government that... It is the Conservative Party colloquially, but its full name is the Conservative and Unionist Party. Mm -hmm. And I guess just to go back to the question originally, you know, coming to university, it was, uh, I'll be honest, I was quite worried because, you know, being a conservative at university is difficult um, at times, perhaps rightfully so, but also at times, you know, I was only 18, 19, 20, mm. 21. And going to, having that opportunity to go to university was fantastic. Um, but it was difficult because students aren't always the most respectful mm. of one's views. And I, I think bringing civility back into politics is so fundamental because everyone has different views. And, you know, that is what the real world is like. And I feel like having a diverse range of views in a seminar, in a lecture, or just in a general debate mm. is healthy because otherwise you become insulated within an echo chamber. And ultimately, that isn't healthy, not only for your personal skills and development, but also 
more broadly, that's not what the real the, the real world is. Mm. You know, there's such a wide variety of views. When I go out door knocking, I start speaking to people um, on the doorstep. You know, I hear such a wide variety. Yeah. And that's what the real world is, not this kind of pseudo echo chamber which can sometimes form at universities. Mm. I mean, there was a, a few weeks ago. Um, I think the York Conservative Society wanted uh, Desmond Swain. MP to speak here. I'm not too sure if he did in the end, but I know there's yeah. a lot of like there's a lot of backlash lot of, like, um, uh, from uh, other societies and groups in the university about um, Desmond Swain speaking here. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned that sort of the deplatforming of uh, certain speakers at yeah. universities, which is uh, certainly a problem for you know the just for freedom of speech in general and just hearing other views you don't you know you can hate what someone's saying but yeah you know i think you should still listen to it yeah and i, I think you really highlight a key issue i think nowadays you know looking back on you know decades and centuries even gone by universities were this hub for intellect and erudite conversation and debate where one's review uh, one's views were respected and listened to and not necessarily shouted down by any um, anyone who I guess was an opponent of of those views but looking at it broadly nowadays where you have people like Desmond Swain having a lot of backlash ultimately you know he is first of all a knight of the realm he was knighted he was democratically elected he has the mandate of the people to represent his constituency and ultimately he's taken the time out of his his day, his week, as mm -hmm. a very busy politician, you know, to come to the University of York to speak to aspiring politicians. And I guess for me, that is so important to allow and inspire, you know, the next generation of MPs, politicians, or anyone who's just generally interested in politics. Mm. And I see it more broadly, whether it be in the US or wider across the UK. Freedom of speech is so fundamental to how we operate as, as a society. But it almost looks as if nowadays, if you speak your mind as someone who may be on the right of the political spectrum, you can get shouted down. And it's happened to me before, you know, mm. being out and speaking about particular uh, policy issues. You say you say your view and you're entitled to that view, yet you get shouted down by people who may not necessarily agree with that. And that's not the healthy conversation which you really should be having at a university this mm. is a time for the bright and talented to broaden their minds not for them to insulate themselves from views which may differ to them mm. yeah I, I agree with what i agree with what you're saying i agree with what you're coming from and that that's why we have things like pep talk to breed conversation because we're we're just having a conversation like we could have different political views but we're here mm -hmm. having a civil conversation and we're challenging our ideas i think on like the topic of kind of like deplatforming, and i feel like politicians are inherently role models and i feel like um if you have a politician or someone who's said said things that aren't that are just kind of like bang out of order I, as like someone who works within the party now I feel like we've seen a lot of stuff especially with the Conservative Party where things might have looked like they've been swept under the carpet having like worked in politics how difficult do you think it is to like try maintain credibility 
as like a politician because obviously there's been quite a few scandals with the Conservative Party, and you know, as 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 a young like Conservative Party member, how do you like not necessarily distance yourself, but how do you like often tackle those hard questions? Because say mm. someone, I know a lot of people who enjoy politics, but don't like politics. Do you, I don't know if you get what I mean. They don't like the the like backstabbing or the you know the scandals. So what would you tell someone who's about to go into politics like? What is it like as a young person in a party? It's first and foremost, I would say politics is is tough. Mm. It is tough because you get a lot of criticism, sometimes fair, sometimes not, yeah. and you really need to develop a thick skin. Um, and I guess in regards to what you were saying just now about um, sort of the scandals, it's so difficult for politicians to remain credible. Yeah. When you do have MPs going off to Australia and partaking in a few activities, which I won't mention on a podcast, and not only that as well, but yes. you know, actual personal scandals like the amount of sexual assaults and violence yeah. we mm. see in politics today, it doesn't give the right impression. And with that is the uh, destruction of trust in the key political and uh, key societal institutions, which we've built our country on and have uh, facilitated our democracy and no higher does that rank than you know what we've seen with previous prime ministers yeah what we've seen with secretaries of state and also just more commonly with the average backbench mp mm. Mm. and as someone uh, uh, who represents a part of essex um, seeing that on a national scale it's not awe it, it it doesn't inspire me to enter yeah. that front line of politics leading the vanguard in in the house of commons mm. it's it's tough it is tough when you see you know when you fight an election and corrupt and uh, scandalous um are common adjectives described for the party you represent because i joined this party and i'll it, it, with your with your leave i'll give a bit more information as to why i joined the conservative party mm. you know I come from a working class family from the east end of London. I've seen my grandfather, my dad, my brother go off and work on the roofs all of their lives. And I know how difficult the daily grind is, shall I say. Mm. You know, waking up at 4.30 to travel into London, not getting home until 5, 6 o'clock, having to deal with harsh conditions, whether it be the blistering sun or the freezing cold. And to me, I want to make sure that their hard work is appreciated. And having that ability, having that experience, seeing my family um, have to work so hard to to make ends meet, especially nowadays with what we're experiencing with the economy, it, it's tough. And this it's something which made me want to go into politics because I want to create a better world mm. um, bit by bit. And, you know, I'm only one councillor in Essex, but... Even if I leave my office when the time comes and have improved one person's life, then I've done my job, in my opinion. And, you know, I've got two two lovely nieces and a, a nephew over in Australia. I want to make sure that they have a better future than what we have. And I want to make sure that they have all the tools necessary for them to go out there, work hard and climb the ladder. It's that fundamental idea of social mobility for me. Mm. But yeah, it, it, it's tough. It's tough. Politics is a tough world and you do need to develop uh, develop a thick skin. But ultimately, 
all of that stuff, all the criticism, all the scandals, everything, all, all, all the slights on your name and personal insults and even insults to your family. It's happened to me before. It's worth it because whilst some people may not appreciate the work I put in, I know at the end of the day that I'm doing what I want to do and yeah. I want to improve people's lives and I know for a fact that I'm helping to do that in my local community. Mm. Do you think that the Conservative Party is the party to deliver on social mobility and for the working class? I personally believe so. That's why I joined the Conservative Party. However, what we have seen over definitely the past few months is the return of the so-called nasty party with the Conservatives. Um, not to bring up a very stupid and dark moment in the Conservative Party's history with Liz Truss becoming the Prime Minister, but what we saw in that growth plan, the scrapping of the additional rate of income tax, bankers' bonus is getting scrapped. And that, to me, isn't the Conservative I believe in. Mm -hmm. The Conservatism I believe in doesn't give out handouts to the 1% or the rich, when the rest of the world is experiencing, the rest of the country is experiencing the cost of living crisis, because those people are insulated from it. You know, three thousand five hundred pound energy bills isn't going to affect them as much as a family who have a collective income of, let's say, thirty thousand or twenty five thousand. The conservatism mm. for me that I believe in is given the people, the average individual. The working class individual, like myself, like my dad, like my granddad, like my brother, the opportunities to go out there and work hard, to climb the ladder, to own a house, mm. to build a family, to provide for them. That, to me, is a conservatism I believe in. And at the moment, I, I'll, I'll be honest here, the Conservative Party has been so... This is the most disassociated I've been with the Conservative Party, mm. especially under when Liz Truss became Prime Minister. To me, that is a sign of a return to the, conser the Conservative Party, which embodies this idea of a nasty party. Mm. I want to make sure that the Conservative Party is the party for social mobility. It is there for the working class. Mm. And I ultimately think, despite the recent years, the Conservative Party is that party. How do you think we got to that position where Liz Truss was elected as leader of the party? And did, did you support the... Liz for Leader campaign uh, when she was in the running? So, in regards to that, I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, upfront and frank. I did mm -hmm. support Liz Truss to mm. begin with. I think it was the best out of a bad bunch. Yeah. But nothing could um, have prepared me for that growth plan. Mm. The growth, growth plan was this straw that broke the camel's back with me and the Conservative Party for various reasons mm. you know i'm still a conservative party councillor yes but this is the mo as i say the most disassociated i've been with it that growth plan was just a slap in the face of so many people in the uk mm. and i guess in in that regard it, it just didn't strike the right tone for me i did support her she got the big calls wrong and sunak is now the prime minister I guess we'll find out on the 17th of November how he envisage, envisions um, the economic uh, outlook for the next year or so with the autumn statement. Um, but in regards to, I guess, the processes which led up to this point, obviously we had um, Boris Johnson be pushed out of number 10 after many, many months of pressure heaping up on him. 
um, all the way back from the Owen Patterson scandal. It mm-hmm. just built up like a snowball effect. And ultimately, it was the allegations towards Christopher Pincher, mm. which I guess was the spark, the catalyst, which really set, uh, packed Johnson's bags yeah, and okay. set him on his way. In the Conservative Party internally, Liz Truss has been a popular figure. She delivered on uh, during her time as Secretary of State for International Trade. And then she was given this monumental job of going to, to be Foreign Secretary. Mm. I mean, I would not want to be Foreign Secretary now at the moment because it's an unprecedented time. Mm. It's an unprecedented time where you have conflict and war in Eastern Europe within Ukraine and you're facing down a barbaric man like Vladimir Putin. So I can understand why she appealed to the conservative voter base. And in that regard, you know, offering low taxes for everyone and um, not being, uh, well, she sugarcoated a lot of the stuff she was saying Mm. compared to Rishi Sunak, who was unafraid, I guess, to tell some harsh truths and the Mm. reality of it. And I'll be the first one to put my hands up in the air and say, I fell for that. I fell for what Liz Truss was saying there. Mm. But I didn't expect the additional rate of income tax to to be cut I, I didn't expect bankers bonus caps to be scrapped to me Liz Trust was the standout figure you know there was a lot of momentum building behind her as soon as it got whittled down to the final two because she is a lot more popular with the voter base yeah. I don't know if it's maybe you could argue there's that kind of Thatcher effect mm. with Liz Trust I know Liz Trust tried so so hard to embody that kind of Thatcher uh, in the, uh, outfit the, the blue suits yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> But, um, you know, if you have a look at the contenders back in the summer, you know, Penny Morden was a popular figure, obviously, mm. but it got down to that point where the members were voting and there was a lot of internal politicking. Yeah. You know, if you now look at the Sunak government uh, today, you can see a combination of experience and political um, bargaining with his cabinet. Liz Truss did that to an extent, but she chose ideology over experience and competence with her cabinet. Mm. And that's why we see people like, in Sunak's government now, seasoned veterans like Mel Stride coming from being chair of the Treasury Select Committee, being brought back into the Department for Work and Pensions. Mm. Um, And then other people like, um, you know, keeping Penny Mordant in, in, in that position as leader of the House of Commons is a tactical decision strategic mm-hmm. uh, I guess it's it's quite a small one obviously she probably was gunning for more than that mm. but also keep your friends close keep your enemies close yeah so it, it, I guess in, in, in that regard what we're seeing with Sunak's government really is the decision to go for competence over experience because there's only two years left until the next general election and the Conservatives have a point to prove they have to redeem themselves otherwise you know there will be a Labour government and mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think, you know, 12 years, it'll be 14 years potentially by the time the Conservatives, uh, the next general election rolls around. And I look back on the 14 years and there's not really been much to show for 14 years of Conservative government. And Mm. I think a spell in opposition would probably be good for the Conservatives for Mm. self-reflection, self-evaluation. Yeah. And to go again stronger in 2029, yeah, um, and any general uh, general elections to come after that. I, th- I think I think it would be easier. Um, and this is like my position during the um, you know the scandal around Liz Truss and and her ultimate res- resignation was that it would probably, if I was in her position, it'd be better to resign because these economic conditions are not going to get any better any time soon. It's not going to be 
Um, there's no uh, you know, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's no fast fix for it. It'd be better to go to the opposition benches to have had a general election and then, well, just let the Labour government try and fix the economy. Mm. And if they don't, then there's your election campaign, uh, for, you know, for, for 29. Um, but yeah, so... I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to see uh, in two years' time when a general election comes around to see uh, if we do get a change in government or whether the Tories can cling on to a majority. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say one final point on that. It's a lot easier to be in opposition than it is to govern. Yes. I mean, credit where it's due to all prime ministers and all politicians. They put their they put their you know they put themselves in the firing line all the time and even mm-hmm. their families sometimes get uh, caught up in the crossfire mm-hmm. and there's a lot of respect i i have a lot of respect for politicians no matter what party what ideolo- ideology what policies they stand for because to enter the world of politics you do have to sacrifice a lot and you do have to make a lot of uh, tough decisions not only for yourself but for your family and i'll just end by saying you know it's a lot easier to be in opposition and mm. but who would want to be prime minister at the moment yeah who would honestly yeah. want to be prime minister at the moment yeah. God. it's uh, you know as the saying goes is that governments don't win elections you know they lose them mm. uh, and that's that's the only way that you know an, mm. an opposition comes into power they, they they don't win the election you know the government loses it um so coming back to the universities again, we keep getting you know, lost in these brilliant, uh, brilliant conversations about you know, the current state of the Conservative Party, yeah. or you know, uh, your personal interests, um, things like your dissertation. Um, what advice would you give to current university students here in York? Um, you know, if they have aspirations of wanting to go into politics, or you know, wanting to go to any other sort of polit- uh, you know, politics-related field, journalism perhaps, or something. I would I would say, and it, it goes back to the point I, I said um, slightly earlier, you know, being able to throw yourself at any opportunity which befalls you. That moment in the CAF with my dad approaching the MP changed my life. Mm. Because I wouldn't be here in front of you two today without it. I wouldn't have studied politics at this university without that moment. And... It all came from a chance. It all came from me building that confidence um, to go up and approach a stranger, Mm. to take that half chance. And I guess, you know, I'll lay out some some real pieces of advice which I've given to people in the past. Opportunities don't always come to you. You have to go out and search for them. And searching for them, you can learn so much more about who you are as a person and at the same time develop who you are as a person. And also on that, you know, when I was doing when I, when I was looking for work experience, and I'll come back to work experience and internships in a moment. The amount of times I had that email which said, um, "Thank you very much for the application, but I'm sorry to inform you that uh, you've been unsuccessful." Mm. Um, countless, countless times. But another piece of advice I would say to anyone who's in a similar position to me or just wants to get some uh, experience and uh, contextual contextualize what they've learned so far in uh, a professional capacity apply apply for stuff you know apply for anything and everything because all it takes is for that one person to say we'll take a chance we'll we'll give them a week's work experience a two two mm-hmm. weeks work experience we'll bring them in for the summer and ultimately you know that kind of 
chance and that the rejection you also get from applying isn't something to fear. Rejection is not something to fear. Let me be clear on that. It's something you can use to develop yourself and refine your skills. And ultimately, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and get back to applying Mm -hmm. because it just takes that one person to give you an opportunity like my MP did, which will change your world. And the last piece of advice I'd give really is a lot of people are going out and doing degrees nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people going out and getting degrees, and ultimately, with that, you have such a high supply of politics graduates that competition for places uh, in the workplace once you've graduated is going to be tough. Yeah, I would say you want something to stand out on your CV, mm, and unique, the best yeah. thing to do for that is to do what I've just said and apply for a week's week's work experience or an internship. Go out there and speak to strangers. Build your confidence up so you feel comfortable speaking to strangers as well because networking is a massive, massive part of the real world, especially if you go into politics. Mm. You need to feel comfortable comfortable being surrounded by people you don't know and making conversation and getting to know people and building those kind of um, work relationships. And I guess... With that, you know, the opportunity to do internships and work experience was fundamental to to to, to where I am now, because mm. having that ability to to work in Parliament stood out on the CV. Because ultimately, an employer is going to look at you know a hundred, hundred and fifty CVs for 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 certain position, perhaps. A lot of them will probably just have you know graduated university mm. two one or first no actual work uh work experience or yeah. actually anything which can show that they've had the uh, their own personal ambition and determination to develop outside of out of their studies mm-hmm. that having stuff like that on your cv is so so important because it will stand out on the page and not only that as well it's so so amazing and it shows your employer that you have the ability to go out and search for opportunities. And then one final thing, just to add to that as well, is when you are applying for these things, it's such such a good learning curve as well because you'll be applying for jobs a lot. You'll be applying for jobs a lot. And I think when it comes to, you know, those interviews and you'll have to speak about things you've done and they ask what experience you have, you can bring up your work experience, you can bring up your internships. And... Ultimately, I think that pays dividends. And you may have to sacrifice an evening here, a week here, a week off, you know, during uh, between your studies, during uh, term breaks. Mm. But a week sacrifice or an evening sacrifice, it, for instance, when I went out campaigning of an evening mm. after I finished school, for instance, that's, those small sacrifices will build the foundation on which you can build your career on. That That's the key advice I'd give to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's... That's really, really important what you said. And one thing that I took from that is networking. Mm. And I guess just one piece of advice that I'd take from what you'd say for anyone listening, I'd say download LinkedIn. <laughs> like, I I love LinkedIn. Like I, I swear I use it more than Snapchat now. But um, that's how I actually met Jordan, through LinkedIn. And it's literally, you can just drop a message to one of your MPs mm-hmm. and they'll be like, okay, yeah, give me a give me an email here. So as you said, it's being proactive. That's the most important thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
currently looking at my laptop. I'm looking at Jordan's LinkedIn to get uh, uh, com- conversation pointers, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which actually brings me on to uh, my next question. I see that you're a member of the uh, Constitution Reform Group. So could you tell us a little bit about that, what you do there? Yeah, so the Constitution Reform Group uh, kind of feeds back and builds on the experience I built um, during my time with Robin Miller, uh, doing the Conservative Union Research Group stuff. And now the UK's constitution has always been something which has interested me. Mm. Um, alongside, obviously, you know, the Amer- America's constitution and other constitutions, I've always been interested in the bedrock of a society. Um, that's where you get with a constitution, whether it's codified or un- uncodified. And the Con- Constitution Reform Group looks to essentially... Re- well, reform certain elements of the constitution in such a manner which brings it into the modern day. Mm. Um, sitting on that group, we've got you know uh, very experienced uh, former MPs and peers and civil ser- former civil servants. Uh, the wealth of experience in the constitution reform group is absolutely fantastic, and ultimately, I think a constitution and one's own history can only go so far. Sooner or later, uh, the mo- the modern age will catch up to them. And, you know, if you look at the Act uh, Act of the Union, for instance, uh, I believe 1707, mm, yeah. you know, that's well, that's over 300 years old now. You know, 315 years old, I think. Mm. And so much has changed in those 315 years, whether it be the internal makeup of the Commons, the internal makeup of the House of Lords, or just more widely about how our constitution operates. So the Constitution Reform Group is essentially there as a campaign group to ensure that the history of our country and the societal institutions which was built from it can be brought into the modern day whilst also being respected. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, we're nearing the 50-minute mark now. We've been talking for so long already. So I think uh, to bring our conversation here to a close, uh, could you tell us of any you know, perhaps funny stories or interesting moments from your time out on the campaign trail? Yeah, yeah. No, there's there's been some really fascinating, <laughs> scary ones, to be honest. Some scenes. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've I've seen some stuff. I'll be honest, almost uh, traumatizing to the extent. But you you know when you're going out on 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 the doorsteps and knocking on people's doors and speaking to them, you know, vast majority of the time they're either nice or they say sorry, not interested. And mm. you know, it's very it's, it can be annoying if you're knocking on someone's door over a weekend when they're watching the football or the rugby or the cricket. So I understand that. But it was there was one time where um, you know I was knocking on a door and I heard a barking. I thought, okay, I'll keep my distance just in case it's a bit of a rowdy dog here. But someone opens the door and um, you know it's a quite an elderly lady with um, a dog scurrying around. I couldn't quite catch the dog at first, so we was halfway through conversation and then out of nowhere. This dog must be like par rabbit or something because it leaps over <laughs> like her her door. It's, it's like one of those half doors where you can close half and keep half open. Oh, right. Leaps over. And at that moment, I was I just didn't know what to do because this dog is, has just jumped over this, you know, meter and a half, you know, door or whatever. And has just landed right in front of my feet. Oh, and my I thought it was a scary dog at first because it was barking quite deep. 
it turned out to be like this little, I don't even know, like a, it wasn't a Pomeranian, but it looked like a Pomeranian. Yeah. So all that kind of, I don't know, it's just the great thing about going out campaign is you never know what you're going to get mm. knocking on the doors. It's different every time. And alongside that, you know, it's such a great opportunity to ma make friends. Where, and I guess that's, again, another piece of advice I'd give to people. You know, no matter if it's, if you're conservative, Labour, Lib Dem, Green or Monster Raven Looney Party supporter, mm. go out and do some campaigning because it's so fun and you can make some really good friends. And again, it's something you can put on your CV, which will impress your employer. But yeah, there's so many fun experiences in politics, whether it's at a local level door knocking or being out in the sunshine on the day Boris Johnson was elected in mm. front of the media and stuff. So many fun memories come from politics. And I would say to anyone who is interested in getting involved in politics, do it because it's tough, but it's so worth it. It is so worth doing politics because you can change people's lives and have a laugh and a joke whilst you do it. And, you know, I can look back on my past few years, whether it be at the University of York or my time as a councillor. It's, it's been an absolute whirlwind and I've met some lovely people and I've heard some very emotional stories. And to, to whenever the time comes for me to, I guess, lay my hat down and take a step back from frontline politics, I will always be left with the memories of knowing that I've helped people out. Mm. And that in and of itself is probably the greatest achievement and the greatest honour that I have ever had. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Jordan. Yeah. Thank you, Belma. And thank you for listening. Um, we hope to see you again this evening for your speakers event um, in Alcuin College, uh, which will, I think will be, you know, fascinating like our conversation has been here today. So I felt like I've learned I've learned a lot. Yeah. I've a lot. And it's really good to see that he's going to be like one of the leaders of tomorrow and it's good to like see that you're just a generally sound bloke yeah it's someone that can, <laughs> like, yeah you someone i can go out like it's it's just good to like know that okay there's still some people in politics who are like okay i trust that person. yeah are you and trying I to say let's get a pint in courtyard after this <laughs> no, 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 no. but yeah just again thanks for coming on thanks for coming all the way from essex to speak to us yeah oh no it's it's my pleasure i, yeah. I feel like uh you, you lot do such a great work uh, such great work not only with the society but also it's just such a pleasure to be back here yeah you know it's only a Memories, couple of years yeah. it's only been a year really since i've graduated but I miss this place so much mm. and the last piece of advice from me today is really make sure you go out and enjoy your studies and enjoy the nightlife in York because it's special. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers.